you know that in some of the first churches in the New England area, they had a special job for some of their church members. This job, uh, and the people were called beetles, okay? And these beetles, their job was to stand in the back of the sanctuary, and they would look out over the congregation and make sure that people weren't talking or sleeping during the teaching time, all right? And, And what they would do is they would beetle people upside the head with a stick, if they were talking or if they were sleeping. Now, we don't have any Beatles today, but I just thought that was funny to tell you. Speaking of sleeping church members, uh, you've probably heard a lot of statistics about, you know, trash that if you line it up end to end, how far uh, around the world it would get. Like, you've probably heard that Americans every year use 700 uh, trips to China and back worth of water bottles just every year. Well, I heard another statistic that said if you take every sleeping church member and lay them down, then they'll just be more comfortable for their nap. (laughs) I didn't actually hear that statistic. It was my attempt at a bad joke, and I am very thankful for your pity laugh. Today, I'm hoping that no one needs to be laid down for a nap uh, because we are going to be looking at a passage of Scripture that shows us what Christians are supposed to delight in. Today, I'll probably make my English teacher wife cringe a lot. I'm going to use the phrase delight in a whole bunch, and I know that English teachers and grammar books and people who are a lot more sophisticated than me would say that you're not supposed to use prepositions at the end of sentences. I don't care. Today, I'm going to say delight in a whole lot because I think it sounds a whole lot better than being the guy who says, in which one delights. Okay, I'm not that fancy, so I'm just going to say delight in a whole lot. Okay, so what does it mean to delight in something? It would probably help if I actually turned this on. I completely forgot. I had nice pictures. I was trying to be like Dow, and I blew it. I'm sorry. So Merriam-Webster, which, by the way, until very recently... I didn't realize that that's not some dictionary lady. It was actually several people. I think it was two brothers, the last name Miriam, and another one with the last name Webster. Anyway, um, I think I was yesterday years old when I figured that out. But they define delight as to place the highest degree of pleasure in something. All right, so that's what it means, to delight in something. That was a little sneak preview. What do dogs delight in? Well, my dog delights in belly rubs, if you can't tell. Dogs also delight when people food accidentally makes its way to the floor. What do little brothers delight in? Well, a lot of little brothers delight in superheroes, probably, but they definitely delight in annoying their sisters. And then one of my all-time role models, the cookie monster, what does he delight in? It's cookies. The cookie monster delights in cookies. Although, and I don't know if this is true, maybe you can tell me, I heard recently that he's not the cookie monster anymore, that he's the vegetable monster. So, so now I think he delights, I think he delights in broccoli or something. I don't know. Um, it would probably benefit me to go on his diet plan, but I like cookies too. So I ask you all this because I want to ask another question. What do you as a Christian delight in? Well, Scripture tells us. Today we're going to be looking at Psalm chapter 1 to see what Christians delight in. But first, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I just want to thank you first that you have given us your word. God, that we can dive in and we can see how you have revealed yourself to us. 
God, I thank you for this opportunity that I have uh, to teach your word this morning. I pray that your words are heard and not my own. God, I thank you for each and every person in the building today that that they are receptive to what you have, that you will open our ears, our hearts, and our minds to your word. But God, most of all, I pray that our actions, our words, and our thoughts are glorifying to you. God, be with us today. We love you. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So you may be wondering why we're going to look at the Old Testament to find out what Christians delight in. Some of you are thinking, well, Jesus didn't even come yet. He wasn't even on the earth yet. You know, some pastors will tell you that we should unhitch or not even use the Old Testament anymore. Well, I think some pastors are wrong. Okay, I think that we should use as Christians the entirety of Scripture to answer any question. So Psalm 1 is just as good a place as any for us to look today. John Piper explains the Psalms like this. He says, the Psalms are God's songs that shape the heart and mind of man. Okay. This means that whenever we look at the Psalms, we have to think of two things. One, we have to remember that the Psalms, just like every other book of Scripture, is the Word of God. And the second thing is that when we study the Psalms, we have to understand that the Psalms are what help shape the heart and mind of man. So I pray that Psalm 1 will shape our hearts and our minds today. Psalm 1-1 says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. In other words, blessed is the man who does not give in to bad advice, and blessed is the man who is not swayed by wicked teaching. Okay, this blessed man, because he delights in God's word, which we'll talk about a little bit more in a few minutes, will understand what is right and will understand what is wrong. Right? Because of this, he will not be easily misled or easily swayed. And we also see here that the blessed man is the man who does not allow the sinful behavior of others to influence him to sinful behavior. Now, this does not mean that Christians should ignore sinners. Actually, the Bible teaches us the opposite. Right? God commands us in Matthew 28, Acts 1, Romans, 9, or Romans 10, uh, Isaiah 6, a bunch of other passages that we as Christians are supposed to reach lost people with the gospel. So we're not supposed to ignore sinners. But I think the implication here is that our closest and most intimate relationships, they have to be with other people who love the Lord. If we spend more time with people who love the world than they do the Word, we're going to be led in a negative direction. We must choose our company wisely. Another thing that's implied here in verse 1 is that blessed is the man who does not partake in group gossip and does not speak divisively. Do you know of those people who are always just stirring up trouble? Now, don't say anybody's name or whisper to the person next to you, because if you do that, then you're probably the person who partakes in group gossip, and probably you're the person who speaks divisively. So don't do that. But Psalm 1 is clearly telling us that as Christians, we cannot be that person. We cannot be known as that person. We cannot be the ones who cause dissension among other people. We cannot be the ones that cause division within the church. So we see what Christians aren't supposed to be like in Psalm 2, or Psalm 1, verse 1. But in Psalm 1, verse 2, we see what Christians should delight in. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. In other words, the delight of the blessed man is the word of God. The word of God is the thing in which Christians must place the highest degree of pleasure. The word of God must be the thing that Christians value most. 
This means that Christians are to put the teachings of Scripture above all else in their lives. And the reason I say this is because Scripture is the avenue by which God reveals himself to us. If it weren't for the Bible, if it weren't for Scripture, we wouldn't have any idea who God was. Scripture is the means by which God showed us his redemptive plan through Jesus. We wouldn't know the gospel if it were not for the pages of Scripture. Scripture is the method by which God informs us that he's close to us, that he lets us know he is there for us in times of trouble, and that he strengthens us when we need him. Scripture is the source that holds God's commands, his decrees, his laws, and his promises. We need to know Scripture. Because of all of this, I believe the Word of God must dominate the thoughts of Christians. This word meditate that's used here in verse 2, it's not talking about some, some guy like Yoda or some old Jedi master just sitting around doing yoga poses and freeing his mind. Okay, that's not what this means. All right, this word meditate actually probably means more along the lines of to constantly think or to constantly ponder and to constantly think about how to take information and implement into our lives. Okay, so this meditate, it's not about freeing your mind, it's about using it. Christians must be so intent on learning the Word of God that we are constantly thinking about it, we're constantly pondering it, we're constantly trying to figure out the most effective way to implement it into our lives. So the point here is not just don't be wicked, be righteous instead, although that would be pretty easy and that is true. Right? There's more to it than that. It's also that we are being shaped by something at all times. We are being shaped by wicked counsel or we're being shaped by sinners or being shaped by scoffers or we're being shaped by the word of God. But we are always being shaped by something. Whatever it is that we delight in, that thing will be what shapes our heart and what shapes our mind. If we delight in the things and the behaviors of this world, if we delight in our sinfulness, or if we delight in the counsel of wicked people, or if we delight in our sin because it's fun or it makes us feel good, then it's going to be wicked counsel, sinners, and scoffers that shape our minds. But if we delight in the Word of God, it will be the Word of God that shapes our minds. Because the blessed man delights in the Word of God, he is also to be thought of as a wise man. So in this passage, every time you hear blessed man, you can always think wise man. The next verse, verse 3, is we see that the, the wise man, the blessed man, is deeply rooted in God's word. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. First, let's talk about this tree, okay? If a tree is planted by water, then it's constantly being fed. Okay, this is going to be a congregational response time here. What do you feed plants with? Water. Obviously, some of you are probably thinking, well, fertilizer helps too. Yeah, but you're ruining my teaching point, okay? You feed plants with water. So if a tree is planted by water, it's constantly being fed. Trees need water because water helps them to grow strong and helps them to stay strong. All right, water also gets into the soil around trees, and when the soil is healthy around trees, it allows the tree to stay strong and to continue to grow. We also see that here it's talking about a tree that yields fruit. If a tree yields fruit in its season, that's a sign of good health. All right, if a tree is receiving all the nutrients and water that it's supposed to receive, then it will yield its fruit in its season. If a tree's leaves don't wither, that's also a good sign. 
So according to leading botanist, which is a plant scientist, okay, according to leading botanist, leaf health is the easiest indicator of tree health. If the leaves on the tree wither and they die too early, that means the tree's probably not very healthy. But if the leaves on the tree stay green for a long time and they don't fall off until the winter like they're supposed to, then it's a good indicator that the tree is healthy. When a tree is healthy, it also has to have a good root system. And that root system keeps it secure and strong. Like the blessed man, Christians have to be like this tree. They have to be rooted in the Word of God. The Word of God is what secures them. The Word of God is what strengthens them. The Word of God is what keeps them from being blown aside and pushed aside by every other thing. Now, thinking in the context of Israel, you might already know this, but this kind of strong tree planted by water would have probably been kind of rare. It would have been a little abnormal. Israel's a desert. And in case you aren't familiar with deserts, trees don't grow very well in the desert. But in Israel, if a tree was to be strong, if it was to grow well, if it was going to be deeply rooted, chances are it had to be planted next to water. The water was what strengthened it. The only trees that were always green, the only trees that always bore their fruit in their season, the only trees that had deeply rooted, uh, deeply rooted roots were the ones that were growing next to water. A Christian who delights in the law of the Lord is like this tree planted next to streams of water. Because he is rooted in the word of God, he will not wither at the first sight of trouble, but instead he'll bear fruit and he'll be deeply rooted even if all the other trees around him are not. So this word fruit is similar to a word that we see in Galatians chapter 5, a passage some of you are familiar with called the fruit of the spirit passage. All right, And in Galatians 5, verse 22 and 23, it says this, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now notice in this passage, it uses the word fruit, not fruits. The reason this is, is because all nine of these attributes are actually one fruit that Christians are supposed to uh, show in their lives. In other words, this is basically saying that Christians cannot love unless they have joy in Christ. Christians cannot have peace unless they're kind. Christians cannot be gentle unless they have self-control. You get the idea. All of these nine attributes make up one fruit that Christians must bear. But we see a different kind of person in the next verse in Psalm 1-4. The wicked are not so. But they're like chaff that the wind drives away. In the plant world, chaff is about as different from a strong tree as you can get. Chaff is the, the flimsy, basically useless casings that you see on the outside of grains and wheats and things like that. Whenever it's time for the harvest, okay, one technique that farmers use, and I'm sure there's other techniques too, but one technique that farmers would use to separate the chaff, the casing from the weed or the grain that they wanted to harvest is they would just throw it up in the air. And the wind would carry away the chaff and the wheat would fall to the ground. They would leave the wheat behind for harvesting. The chaff is so flimsy and so weak, so brittle, that even a slight breeze would carry it away. If we know that chaff is almost the exact opposite 
of a strong tree, then we must also know that the wicked, being almost the exact opposite as Christians, must not delight in the Word of God above all other things. The wicked delight in the things of the world. The wicked delight in themselves. The wicked delight in money. The wicked delight in power. The wicked delight in success. The wicked delight in pleasures. The wicked delight in their reputation. Basically, the wicked delight in everything but the Word of God. So in contrast to the man who delights in God's Word, the wicked does not delight in Scripture, so he is, like, he is like chaff, whereas the Christian is like a strong tree, deeply rooted in the Word of God. The wicked, the non-Christian, they're like chaff, easily blown away by just the gentlest breeze. Basically, and this is going to sound harsh, but basically what Scripture is saying is that the wicked is essentially flimsy and useless, just like chaff. The wicked man has no rootedness. The wicked man has no fruit. The wicked man withers at the first sight of trouble. The wicked man is influenced by bad counsel. The wicked man is influenced by sinners. The wicked man is influenced by scoffers. The wicked man is also the one who gives bad advice. He is also the one that is openly sinning against God, and he's also the one that is doing the scoffing. The wicked man is the one who creates division among other people. It's a lot of harsh language here about the wicked person, so you're probably figuring, well, what does that mean for the wicked person? What happens to them? Well, verses 5 and 6 tell us. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. Those who are like chaff, when they stand before the Lord at the judgment, at the end of days, they'll be crushed for their sinfulness. They will never receive the eternal inheritance of fellowship with God. They won't have it. There's no hiding your wickedness from God. He, being God, knows all things, including how our hearts and our minds have been shaped. If we've allowed our hearts and minds to be shaped by those who are wicked, by those who sin openly against God, by those who give bad counsel, if we sit at the table with scoffers, then we will have our hearts and minds shaped by those things, and God will know. But if we are shaped by the Word of God because we meditate on it day and night, and in every second of our day we are contemplating the things of God, that we see in Scripture, he will know that our minds and hearts have been shaped by the Bible. He will know that you cannot hide it from him. Tremper Longman, who's a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary, says this about Psalm 1. He said, Psalm 1 deliberately draws two portraits in our minds, the portrait of the wicked man and the portrait of the wise man. The question then is posed, which are we? I think this is a good question, but I want to use this question to propose another question. Instead of which are we, I'd like to ask how are we? So let's think about the tree from verse 3. This is another congregational response time. How does a tree come to exist? How does it grow? What happens? The first step. All right, A seed is planted. The same is true for us. When you're talking about a tree, the wind might have carried it and accidentally planted it, 
or an animal might have dropped it and it accidentally planted it, or a farmer or just a good Samaritan might have buried the seed of the tree in the ground and watered it, and it was planted. But all that being said, the tree was planted. In the same way, the only way that we are made wise, the only way that we are made any different from those who are influenced by the scoffers and the wicked and the sinners, the only way we are made any different is that we are planted. We are planted by God. When God reveals his gospel to us, that is him planting us. Our status as being like strong trees doesn't come from our own doing. Right? If a tree cannot plant itself, then neither can you plant yourself. God has to plant us. So you might be wondering, what is this gospel? You use the word, what is it? Well, if I were to explain it pretty simply, I'd say that the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ, the righteous Son of God, died for the sins of guilty people like us. And he rose again, eternally triumphant over Satan, over sin, over death, and over hell, so that there is now no condemnation for those who believe. Paul tells us in Romans 5.8 another simple definition of the gospel. He says that God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, to compare this to our passage today in Psalm 1, while we were still living as unrepentant, unwise, faithless, evil, wicked, flimsy, and useless chaff, Jesus Christ died and was resurrected on our behalf so that we would become blessed, wise, deeply rooted disciples of God who would delight in his law and joyfully worship him forever. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father God, I again thank you for your word. Thank you that you have given us Psalm 1 so that we can have just a glimpse of an understanding of what it means. What it means to be a wise man, what it means to be deeply rooted in your word. God, I pray that you allow us to be different from the wicked, different from the chaff. God, I pray that we as Christians will meditate on your word day and night, as you say in Psalm 1-2. God, I just ask for each and every person in this room that we will concentrate our hearts and our minds and our souls on you. God, as we leave this place, I, I ask that you bless us with the ability to serve you in all things that our words, our thoughts, and our actions are glorifying to you. We love you. It's in your son's Jesus' name we pray. Amen.